We are, of course, in our study of Luke's gospel, and so take your Bibles and look with me at Luke chapter 4. You remember from two weeks ago that the writer of Hebrews clearly says that Jesus Christ is a faithful high priest who has been tempted at all points as we are yet without sin. And of course, we come to the beginning of Jesus' ministry here in our study of Luke chapter 4, and we realize that's precisely how the ministry of the Lord, the Anointed One, the Messiah, began. It began with a demonstration of both His humanity and yet His dependence upon the divine power of the Spirit of God. You remember we've been looking at this entire section from His baptism through His temptation. These were uh, scenarios and events that God put together, but then Luke threw together in this record collectively as a as a proof, an authentication that Jesus is the Son of God, the beloved Son of God. And in fact, the Lord Himself had declared that back in chapter twenty, or verse twenty-two of chapter three. He said, "This is my beloved Son. You are my beloved Son. In you, I am well pleased." And He used that Old Testament language the Lord did, which He had spoken previously by the prophet. It was the divine authentication of Jesus as the Anointed One, the Messiah. And then there was that visible demonstration of the Spirit resting upon Him. And then John says later, He remained on Him. That is, John the Baptist. The Spirit of God remained on Christ. This was the divine authentication of the Son of God. And then Luke puts the genealogy right there because he traces it back to Adam for the the humanity of Christ. He is giving us the human identification of Christ. He wants us to know he goes all the way back to Adam. He goes all the way back to humanity. He is a part of us. He's a part of our nature. He is indeed human. And so if he's going to be a substitute, if he's going to be our advocate, if he's going to be the Messiah, he has to be fully God and fully man. And so then we came to chapter 4 two weeks ago and we begin to unfold the spiritual vindication of the Son of God. We have his divine authentication, we have his human identification, and now we have his spiritual vindication at the beginning of his ministry. Does he, does he submit himself to his heavenly Father? That's the issue. When the writer of Hebrews says he's been tempted at all points yet, as, yet without sin... What we want to know is, did he do that as a man? We know that God can't be tempted to do evil, so it would be pointless for Satan to tempt Jesus in his deity. But can he, as one of us, fight the good fight? Can he go all the way for us? Can he submit himself to his Father's will and words for us? And we saw last time that in verse 14, he walks by the Spirit's influence. He was full of the Holy Spirit. And in verse 14, after the temptation, it says he went into Galilee in the power of the Spirit. So as the Son of God, who is fully human, he lived his earthly ministry under the influence of the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. So while it is true that Jesus never ceased to be God in his earthly ministry, it's also true that as fully man, he humbled himself under the Spirit's influence and obeyed. He submitted himself to the Spirit moment by moment so that he would experience humanity in full dependence just as we do. And in fact, he yielded to the Spirit's will. We noted that at the 
second part of verse 1, he was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness. You remember we said that Matthew's gospel indicates that the Spirit took him out there using verbs that indicate he was forced out there or taken out there by the Holy Spirit. And then Luke indicates that he was led the whole time by the Holy Spirit. And of course, the verbal idea here of the temptation in verse 2 means he was being tempted the whole time. So he was led out there by the Spirit of God, he was led around by the Spirit of God, and he was being tempted by Satan the entire time while under the Spirit's purposes and control. In his humanity, he would have to depend completely upon the Spirit's grace and power while being tempted to do evil. We noted last time that his circumstances are different than the first Adam. Second Adam's circumstances are far different. First Adam had no curse when temptation came to him at, at the behest of Satan himself who had used a creature like the serpent to tempt Eve and ultimately Adam's tempted heart. He was living in an uncursed paradise. There was no moral evil around him, yet with Jesus it was a cursed world and there was moral evil all around him. There was no curse on the earth at the time of the first Adam. The second Adam had a cursed earth. In fact, Jesus was in the wilderness, a cursed wilderness at the time. With the first Adam, there are no natural calamities. There's no fear, no spiritual or physical need that was ever de neglected, no desire left unfulfilled, no limitation to his humanity other than finiteness, but no curse, no fulfillment limited, no unsatisfied hunger, no physical infirmities, no humiliation. He was a vice regent of God himself. He never sacrificed any rights, the first Adam. He'd never had any relational difficulty with anyone else. He'd never had any purpose other than serving his God, and yet he'd never had to lay his life down for anything. He was given everything right up front, whereas with the second Adam, everything was different. Unsatisfied hunger, physical infirmities, the lowest humiliation, sacrifice from Sacrifice of heaven in order to come to our cursed world. We saw that last time. And so Satan has an advantage here with regard to the temptations. And Jesus, of course, was taken by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted the entire time. Now, at the end of the temptation, you have what's recorded in the Gospels, the final three sort of blasts. This is, this is the collective. This is hell's fury. This is the crescendo. This is the pinnacle. He was tempted the whole time, so he is, of course, depending upon the Spirit of God, and yet he's only refreshed by the Spirit of God because he's exhausted physically and he is ravagingly hungry. In fact, he hadn't thought about food up to this point. According to the texts, it seems that he became hungry afterwards, so he was ignoring food. Maybe it was a formal fast, we don't know. And what was at stake? We saw that last time. Satan says here, if you are the Son of God. That's what's at stake. Listen, if you are God's special beloved Son, here's the, here's the ultimate question, the ultimate temptation Satan wants to bring. If you're his beloved Son, then surely you must be free to prove that fact for yourself. You must be free to prove it for yourself. Surely you don't have to merely take God's claim that you're His beloved Son at face value. Surely you have a right, you're entitled to furnish your own self-authentication. 
to prove it to yourself. And if you're not satisfied with the conditions, then maybe you should take a little bit for yourself of what is offered you. Prove that you're a child of God. Prove that you can trust your father. Prove it for yourself that he's faithful to you. Self-authenticate. Don't just set your own sense of things aside and believe the the promise. Don't do that. Self-authenticate. Decide for yourself. See, because if Satan can get the man, Jesus, to be unfaithful to God's promise, God's word, or defy God's will in order to do his own, or even to disbelieve God's power and provision, then, as you know, the eternal plan to to save sinners would have been over. And so the tempter comes. And it's simply astonishing to ponder, literally, what is about to happen here. In fact, I was thinking about this. The Holy Spirit of God is empowering Jesus to withstand temptation, and yet the devil is putting Jesus' humble dependence on that power to the test. Now, there is the battle of the universe, if you will. And it's no battle when it comes to God's power against Satan because we've talked about Diabolos before. We've talked about the devil. He's not, uh, he's not a, uh, a being of, of uh, sovereign evil. He has to ask God permission. He's not sovereign. He's not omniscient. He's a creature. He's finite. And he is given permission by God to test, and he's given rain over the earth for a time uh, to store up wrath and, and God's judgment upon himself, though he, he, as Packer says, has some sort of twisted, uh, what does G.I. Packer said? He has a maggot in his mind, he says, because he, he believes he can overthrow God. But what's happening here, just in this epic moment, is the Holy Spirit of God is empowering Jesus to withstand the temptation, and the devil is putting Jesus' dependence on that power to the test. And that is always Satan's work. He is always trying to demonstrate on earth that God's power is inferior to his own. That's what he's trying to demonstrate. And here's how it goes. If, if God saves a soul and promises to keep that soul secure forever, Satan's aim is to expose God's inability to pull that off. He wants people to deny God. He wants people to refuse, to recant, and to apostatize, and never have believed. That's what he wants. In the book of Job, we learn that Satan accused God of shielding Job. Remember that? He accused God of shielding Job from any kind of faith-crushing trauma. Well, you protect him from anything that might really crush his faith. And that slander was that God kept his servant from serious devastation, listen, as a way to mask God's inability to sustain faith. That was the issue. One wonders how that irony escapes Satan that he thinks he can overpower God, and yet he says God is hindering his power. (laughs) How can you accuse God of hindering a power you say is not more powerful than you? It's it's an irony. It's a twist. It's evil. It's, It's just lies by which he deceives himself. So we come to the enticements that Satan brings, and we'll just deal with the first one because uh, next Sunday's communion and I want to deal with the second two during the communion time. 
This is absolutely riveting what happens here when the devil comes to tempt him in these final triple crescendo temptations. Verse 3, And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Tell this stone to become bread. Now, the if question is familiar to us because it is no surprise to us that the second Adam would be tempted in the same way the first Adam was tempted. Satan is raising a question about the word God had spoken. God has spoken his word. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And Satan says, well, if that's true, then... If it's indeed true, what is this intended to do? It's intended to get a human being to dialogue about God's provision and promise. To dialogue about God's character. To have a conversation, maybe we could say it this way, to put God's promise on trial. God promises to provide for his people. He's always promised to provide for his people. And of course, every one of Jesus' answers is drawn from one of the greatest sections of Scripture in Deuteronomy on the provision of God for his people. Chapter 6 through chapter 8. You can read it at your leisure sometime. It is one of the greatest sections of Scripture on the faithfulness of Almighty God and God's people and a, a recounting of their rebellion and their disbelief of God's promise to provide. They didn't trust him. And he took them out in the wilderness to test them. And it is recounted there in those chapters. And then they are reminded again, you need to trust. Jesus draws from those chapters in these answers. Why? Because they're the greatest passages of Scripture on God's provision. That he can be trusted. Moreover, they are, they are warnings to listen to God's word instead of your own. Don't get into a dialogue about whether God's word is true. Don't, in your mind, get into a dialogue with anyone or any earthly entity, let alone your own flesh, in your own fleshly mind. Don't get into a dialogue about God's character or his faithfulness. If he says it, it comes with his character. It comes with his faithfulness. That's the point. And so what Satan is trying to do here is raise a question about God's character by raising a question about God's word. The bottom line here is man's versus God's wisdom. Man's versus God's wisdom. Is God's wisdom superior? And you remember in the account with Adam in the garden, this is precisely what happened. The first Adam was tested in this same way, and he failed miserably. And all Satan had to do was get them into a dialogue about whether God is truthful or whether he's a liar. God had said, you shall surely die. It was a concept unfamiliar to Adam. Death? There's no familiarity in Adam's world with that. In fact, I think in the, in the warning about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that's precisely the point. Here's, here's what God was saying. I'm going to tell you, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. I'm also going to call it the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You don't even understand evil. You don't understand it as a concept. You don't understand death. You don't experience death. But I'm giving you a prohibition, and it has that terminology associated with it. What was God's point? Don't ask for an explanation beyond what I say. Don't put past the parameter that I provide. If I tell you you will die, 
You don't have to say to me, well, what is death? What is that? Because what you're doing is you're raising an objection to God and demanding further revelation. You should never do that. God is to be trusted. Satan came along in Genesis 3, 4 and said, you surely won't die. At that point, beyond already having a conversation about God's character, at that point, the first Adam should have done what Jesus does here. He doesn't even have the dialogue. He simply confronts the dialogue. Here's the essence of the temptation. Jesus, do what comes naturally. If God says you're his beloved son, prove it. Prove it yourself. Prove it to yourself and and prove it to the world by yourself. By doing what men do when they've been deprived of their needs. Just do, do that. Do what comes naturally. Use your special sonship to create food and satisfy your longings whenever and however they arise. Do not trust the provision of God. If he didn't give you further explanation, if he didn't give you better circumstances, if, if he led you out in the wilderness and, and you are ravagingly starving and you are exhausted and you are weak and frail and yet you are the beloved son, if you're the son of God, do what comes naturally. Prove it to yourself that, that you can do whatever you want. The spiritual impact of this temptation is this. Exalt human wisdom over God's. Choose man's thoughts over God's thoughts. Very simple. To doubt God's promises and provision. To trust human words rather than the word of God. So here's the basic issue. When God speaks, will you trust without question that it is the infinite wisdom and truth because he is wisdom and truth? It's our disposition toward God's word. And of course, the trust of the son is is immediate and it is resolute Notice verse 4, Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Notice he says, it is written. He's not accessing the mind of God as, as God or deity. He's not accessing it outside of his humanity. His humanity had learned it. He'd grown up with it. He'd set his heart fastened upon it. He was trusting God up even to this point from day one. The scriptures were in his mind. His trust of the scriptures was in his mind. And so it is there on the forefront of his mind. Man shall not live on bread alone. As I said, he's quoting Deuteronomy 8, chapter 3. Deuteronomy 8, chapter 3. Matthew records that he quotes the whole thing. Jesus apparently, according to Matthew's account, included the entire verse of Deuteronomy 8, Verse 3, which as you know, the second half says, the first half is man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That is the entire quote from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. You say, why doesn't Luke include it? Well, Luke doesn't include it, I think, because the second, he doesn't include the second line because he's pinpointing Jesus' refusal to doubt the provision of God. You don't have to include the second line if you just say the first line. And all Luke wants us to focus in on is that Jesus is pinpointing 
the provision of God as the issue. Yes, you should live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. But the, the point of the refusal, the victory over the temptation began with simply saying, I will not provide for myself. Yes, I should believe every word that comes from the mouth of God. That is the truth by which I should live. But on the front end, I'm just telling you, man doesn't live by grabbing after his own earthly sense of things. Man doesn't live by being fulfilled here in this life on a moral plane. There is nothing but cursedness here. In fact, in the context of Deuteronomy 8.3, look there for just a moment. It's a very, very important section of Scripture, and I just want you to have it in your mind. We won't belabor it. It's a long section and wonderful to read and study on your own. But Deuteronomy chapter 8, notice, just thinking about the context, verse 1, all the commandments that I'm commanding you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. There's the promise to provide. And verse 2, you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that He might humble you, testing you, to know what was in your heart, and here it is, whether you would keep His commandments or not, whether you would obey His word or not. God tested them, just like Jesus here, the second Adam, is being tested to prove what is in His heart. God tests us. You know, it's an interesting uh, reality that we face every day. When God puts even his own children for the sake of increasing your virtue, a la Hebrews 12, when he puts you in circumstances that pressure you, that hem you in and bind you and, and put uh, difficulty on your heart and, and, and weigh you down with fears and tremblings, when he does that, he is... Doing the same thing. He's testing you that he might humble you to know what's in your heart. When all of the comforts are gone, when you're ravagingly starved for his word, when you have an appetite for relief and the temptation comes, what's in your heart? That's the issue. Will you keep the word of God? So verse 3 then comes into wonderful vividness here. He humbled you and he let you be hungry. Very, very similar. Man, when, when mankind is at his wit's end and he's starving and he, he has no security, no sense of security, we're vulnerable. And then God fed you with manna, which you didn't know. What does that mean? It wasn't intimate to you. You didn't know how it came. You didn't know, you didn't trace its path. You didn't work out the provision on your own. You didn't store it up in some place and then go get it. You didn't send men out to go gather it from other nations. You did not know how this manna came except that God had promised it and he brought it. And nor did your fathers know. God had provided for them. They had no idea. They didn't even tell you a pathology other than God. What was the purpose? That he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. God led you to the place where you didn't have anything. God created the appetite. God then supplied it that you might know and understand that you don't look to the thing. You don't become enamored with the fulfillment of the 
the reward, the earthly benefit. You don't go after the earthly things. You go to Him who provided. That was the point. And this is a reminder to Israel that God used difficult circumstances to test their faith. And He does the same with Christ here. And He does the same with us as His children. And later in the text, he'll warn them not to be arrogant and forget who was doing the providing. Notice verses 19 and 20, what he finishes with. It shall come about if you ever forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them. I testify against you today that you will surely perish like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you. So you shall perish because you would not listen to the voice of the Lord your God. There's the word of God again. That's the crux of the issue here. That's the heart of this temptation. Jesus was tested as to whether he would believe the word of God rather than the words of Satan. God's people experience deprivation in a sin-cursed world. We face temptation to raise questions about what God has said. And we are to depend upon the Savior the same way Jesus is dependent upon the Spirit of God here. In this extreme hour of testing, we're called to deny our own wisdom in those moments and believe God's word of promise. It's about relying completely on what God says that he will do. It is man's versus God's wisdom. Jesus, by the way, in this moment, is trusting completely from the heart the word of his Father. And we have to ask the question, what, what is that moment like for him? How is it that in that moment, when the fury of hell has been at him for lo these many weeks, and at the very end of it, when he's at his lowest point, how did he remain faithful, ever faithful in such dire circumstances. And when the temptation was so torpedo-like, it was so pointed, it was so enticing at the most extreme point of human desire for relief. Sometimes people look at this text and there's no fanfare here, so it's almost as though, oh yeah, I've been hungry before and, and I, I, I can sense what happened here. He just chose uh, you know, to wait for the angels to come minister to him. No, Satan never attacks without schemes. He never, he never uh, dabbles in, for us that is, in, in the trivial. And yet this is the Son of God and this is the moment of triumph at the beginning of his ministry. This is his high priestly work begun in vivid demonstration so Satan is bringing here a temptation that would have been easy to grab. So quick to fulfill. And he uses the question, if you are the Son of God, because he's putting it in Jesus' remembrance what the Father had said. So there's entitlement laced in this thing. This is why, by the way, the prosperity gospel is so hellish. Because it is a temptation to earthly entitlements. 
We are never to imagine we have a right to earthly entitlements, let alone that they would fulfill. That's this temptation. Go after it. Trust in yourself because of what God has said about you. And Jesus wants to trust the word of God above his own wisdom, his own human wisdom. He must have kept his mind constantly nourished on what God had said about the authority of Scripture and the sufficiency of Scripture, and the path is the same for us. You must remember the authority of God's word and the sufficiency of God's word when tempted. In fact, I can imagine that Jesus must have had coursing through his mind the words of the prophets, particularly maybe passages like Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 10. Son of man, take into your heart all my words and listen closely. Take into your heart all my words. Deuteronomy 4, verse 10, Moses had said, Assemble the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, God said through the prophet, so that he may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children. I mean, this is generational. This is what ought to be on your mind. This is authority. This is to be passed on. This is immovable. Sometimes people fail in temptation because the word of God is not authoritative to them. In fact, that's probably the greatest coup ever struck by the pragmatic movement in the church. They have literally pulled the foundations out in the minds of the people. Pulled the foundations out that are rooted in God's self-attesting to his own authority. Right? 2 Timothy 3, 16. All scripture is breathed out by God. It has inherent divine sovereign authority because it is breathed out by him. He didn't breathe power into written words. The very words inscripturated are God's words. And from God, therefore, they are then sovereign. Therefore, they have absolute authority. And what the pragmatic movement has done today is is not teach it from the pulpits and buy into secular pop psychological ideology and buy into sort of the, the social gospel ideology and buy into the lack of sufficiency ideology. And so ultimately people then sit and they, they hear nothing about the authority of God's word. But God said through the prophet Moses to the people of Israel, assemble them that they may hear my words. Look, just hearing them is authoritative. This is why we will never stop preaching the word of God. It's not about a speaker and a bunch of people sitting uh, like spectators listening. That isn't the reason we do what we do. We do this because you are sitting under the voice of God through a frail human instrument. And if I don't do my homework, you get nothing. Right? You want to hear the word of God. You want to hear its authority in your life. You want to be convicted. Isn't it funny when you tell your friends that? Why do you go to that church? It's so narrow. Because I want to be convicted. What? That's odd. No, no, no. I want the voice of God in my life. I want the authority of God to come from that pulpit. And then what were the families to do? In the Shema, the prayer of Israel, Deuteronomy 6, verse 6, they were to take these words which were commanded to them and they shall be on your heart. The greatest act of worship is to bring your heart under 
the authority of God's word. It is supreme. It is sovereign. It doesn't move. It is from God himself. Listen to Isaiah 59, verse 21. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit which is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth nor from the mouth of your offspring nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord, from now and forever. My words are to be passed down because they have inherent authority. Verse Uh, Matthew 24, verse 35, Jesus said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words shall not pass away. They don't move. They don't change. They rule. Mark 8, 38, listen to this warning Jesus gave. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words. Listen to the, the equal relationship between a Christian who denies the person of Christ who, who says they love Christ and then later denies him and denies the words of Christ. That's an apostate. People say, oh, I love Jesus. I just don't like the Bible. Sorry. One and the same in truth content. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels John's Gospel, chapter 14, verse 24. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Even the words Jesus spoke. He said in chapter 14, chapter 15, chapter 16, that the Spirit would come and He would bring to remembrance all that Jesus had said. And remember what He said? My words are spirit and are life. They're life to you. So much so that in John fifteen seven he said, if you abide in me, and you would expect the text to say, and I abide in you. But notice what he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. They're one and the same. The person of Christ, the spirit of truth, the spirit who wrote the truth. It has inherent authority. So we say as a church, we affirm some things about the Word of God. It is absolutely authoritative. We want to know what God says. And this is what Jesus is illustrating here. Man doesn't live by bread alone. He lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Why? Because it's authoritative, first of all. Secondly, it is insightful. You say, well, that's a shallow word. Well, here's what I mean. This is, this is Psalm 119, 97 to 104. Oh, how I love thy law. It's my meditation all the day. Why? Because from it, I get sharpened thinking about moral things. I get acuity. I get insightfulness, supernatural wisdom. I'm wiser than my teachers. That doesn't mean you puff yourself up above people who are older than you or taught you. What it means is you, over time, practicing the word of God, are, you, you get discernment and insight that quite often is more practiced than even someone who is older than you. More practiced, wiser, beyond your years. In theological terms, we call that the, here's a fancy word for you, the perspicacity of Scripture. The perspicacity. You you should write those words down and amaze your friends. Perspicacity, it means... Piercing insightfulness and wise discernment, acuity, 
We also say the word of God is dependable. You can count on it. Absolutely dependable. That is to say, it is reliable. It doesn't move. Isaiah 55, 11 says that very thing. It is faithful to accomplish what God intends, right? So my word goes forth out of my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. And because of my word, you will go out with joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills are bursting forth in song before you. And all the trees of the field clap their hands. Why? At the very word of God, it's reliable. Creation even knows that. And longs for the restoration of all of it. Romans 8. It is also sufficient. Sufficient. Absolutely sufficient. Psalm 19. By the way, Doc, didn't you do a like a journal article on the sufficiency of God's Word? We, we ought to be able to supply that um, at the seminary. It is on Psalm 19, and it is, or at least that's one of the passages. Listen to Psalm 19, if I can ever get my pages in my Bible to get there. All right, here we go. Listen to the beginning of verse 7, which is now the special revelation of God. The first six verses are the natural revelation of God. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And the judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold. Now, by the way, that is not to say you should imagine in your mind a little gold piece and a Bible and you make your choice. He's talking about the wealth of the world. Earthly riches. They're nothing compared to the divine riches. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. That is just a great illustration of the fact that the very things in life that bring the full experience, the full experience of what a human body will taste on a moral framework, utterly sweet and fulfilling. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Look at the discernment. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Listen, only God's word can acquit. Only God's word can bring discernment to see the errors. Only God's word can keep back a servant from presumptuous sins. Don't let those things rule over me, and then I will be blameless. I'll be acquitted of great transgression. And so let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable. What does he mean? Be conformed to your word. So it is authoritative. It is sufficient. It is sharp and insightful. It is dependable. It is also penetrating. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. The Word of God is living and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword. I just don't... It makes no sense to me when someone says, I want a relationship with the Spirit of God outside of this book. More dynamic. How can you get more dynamic than a living and abiding Word of truth. First Peter, we're born again by the living and abiding Word of God. 
It defines your heart. It uncovers your heart. It uncovers the deepest matters of the inner man. It goes down to the thoughts and intentions of the heart and makes a division between them so that you can see them. That's what I was thinking. Wow, that was my motive. That was my reasoning. That I was sinning and I didn't even see it because I had a blind spot and I was deceived and I read the scriptures and it just dug all that up and showed me where the real issues were. That's what the scriptures do. Here's another fancy word for you. The perspicuity of scripture. There it is. Clear. Absolutely clear. Perspicacity, insightful. Penetratingly insightful. Perspicuity, man, it goes deep and brings clarity. That's what we believe. That's what Jesus knew in this moment. And it was powerful against temptation. That's why we're given in Ephesians 6 the imagery of armor and one of the pieces, one of the main pieces in your hand that you grab. So you've got a shield, but you grab the Word of God. Why do you grab the Word of God? Because it is able to quench. It is able to stop. It is able to counter temptation. If you will believe it. So God's Word is... Efficient. You say, well, pastor, I believe all that and I get in temptation and I face all that. I know Jesus is my faithful high priest and, and I'm, I'm, I believe all that stuff and still I am weak. I, I fail in those times when Satan comes at me and I'm vulnerable. Well, look with me for just a moment at 1 Thessalonians 2. You got to do something if you're going to be where Jesus was in that moment. You're going to have to do what he did. In his humanity, he, he didn't just quote a Bible verse. <laughs> it wasn't about vain repetition. It even wasn't about human willpower with, you know, Bible verses sprinkled over the top. No, not at all. Notice 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verse 13, very familiar verse. For this reason, we, Paul says, we also constantly thank God that when you, he's talking about this new church plant in Thessalonica coming out of idol worship, that you received the word of God which you heard from us. What does that mean? They listened to his sermons. They listened to his sermons. You say, I do. I come and I listen to sermons. That's right. You do. But that isn't going to overcome temptation in the moment. It's what you need. You must fill your mind up with the Word of God, but you must do the second verbal idea here, the second action. You received the Word of God, which you heard from us, but not only did you then just listen to it, but you accepted it, not as the Word of men, but for what it is. The Word of God, look at this, which also performs its work in you who believe. So they received it. The verb means to receive alongside of. So they took it in. They, they, they checked it out. They were reading it. They were, they were listening to it. They were pondering it. They took it in. But then they, the second verb means to accept it. It means to take hold of as one's own, to own it. 
to grab it as one's own. This is an inward welcoming. This is when the will says okay. This is when the hands that want your own way let go. This is when pride turns to humility. This is when self-will turns to confession. This is when human fear that you're not going to get what you want and need gives way to saying, man will live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And you don't just sit there passively. You actually reach for Christ and obey. That's what this moment describes. Notice he says, you you accepted it not as the word of men, but as the word of God. And then notice he says, which performs its work in you who believe. Believe. The common arguments go something like this. I, I don't want to feel any conviction that will force me to face some deficiency in my character. Then you're not believing. And the Word of God's not going to perform its work in you because you're not accepting that there are deficiencies and God's Word is going to point it out. I have a right to certain lifestyle choices. And, and nothing, not even Scripture, should infringe on those choices. It's not going to perform its work in you. You don't believe. My personal happiness and fulfillment is most important. And if some, teaching from the Bible, challenge what makes me happy, then I won't hear it. <clears throat> not going to perform its work in you who believe. Because you're not believing. My opinions, my feelings ought to at least be validated by the church or other Christians. Otherwise, I'm not interested in examining the scripture the way that church examines it. People leave this church all the time over that. My opinions rule. It's not going to perform its work in you who believe. You're not going to succeed where Christ succeeded for you. You won't. Or how about this? The Bible should entertain me and pique my particular interest or it's not worth my time. God said, it's not only worth your time, He's worth your time and He wrote it. He spoke it. Or the Bible should never infringe upon my comfort zone. Don't get too personal. Or worse, God should do things to make my life easier and happier and not require me to always conform to His standard. It won't perform its work in you. You don't believe. The Thessalonians welcomed the word of God by faith and their eyes were opened. I don't know how many times I have sat with someone who says, I can't believe that. And I, I want to help them see, you can't because you won't. It's a will issue. You must plead for God's mercy and confess the sin of believing your wisdom over God's. Somewhere in your evaluation of things, you have put God on trial. Somewhere in your evaluation of things, you have bought the lie that you are entitled to something. Look, Jesus knew he, he was never to say in his humanity, I'm entitled to all the things I want. God said he would provide. The Father said he'd provide. So man doesn't live on these earthly fulfillments. And in this moment, he became a marvelous, faithful high priest. 
Jesus said in John 8, 31, if you abide in my word, then you're truly my disciples. That's what it means to remain in God's word, to believe it, to submit your will to it, to trust him. It's interesting that not too long after Jesus was tempted, not too long after he was tempted at the beginning of his ministry here, and he was tempted, of course, all throughout, but particularly here and then, of course, at the Garden of Gethsemane and then at the cross. But not too long after this experience here, he told his disciples this in Matthew 6, 31 to 33. Listen to this. Do not be anxious then, saying, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? With what shall we clothe ourselves? What's he talking about? Basic human securities, which he in the wilderness was without in spades. But he said, don't, don't be anxious saying, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? Where's our clothing going to come from? How are we going to be protected and provided for? For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek. Unbelievers run after that stuff all day long. It's only temporary and they rarely get what they ultimately want. And then he says this, your heavenly father knows you need all these things. I love that language because he's pointing us back to the provider. Your heavenly father who gave you the promise knows you have need of all these things. Really, Lord, do you really know I have the needs that I believe I have? Do you really know that? God says, hey, come to me. What did Jesus say in verse 33 of that same text? Seek first. It's emphatic in the the original language. Seek first the kingdom of God. And his what? Righteousness. What is that? A righteous heart that actually believes. And then everything else, all the security, all the things you're looking for, opens up to you. Not because you're going to get earthly fulfillment, but because your eyes of faith are going to be open and you're going to be settled. You're going to find your feet on solid ground. You will have been what Jesus experienced right then when he said that to Satan. You live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You don't get into a conversation about God's character or His promise or His provision. Man doesn't live by those things. And Satan's first of the triple threat was put down because Jesus believed in God's wisdom over the temptation to exalt man's words. That's where we need to be, beloved. People say sometimes, oh, you can't really get an example of how to fight temptation in this text. Well, the point of the text wasn't so much primarily that we learn how to fight temptation from it, but it certainly does illustrate how we're to fight temptation. Why? Because he depended on the Spirit of God, just like we do. And Hebrews says he went through this so that he could sympathize with our infirmities. So clearly we fight the same battles, just not at his level because he never yielded. We yield all the time. So, he is being spiritually vindicated as the Messiah, our Messiah. And so as we look back, then we, we glory in, in how much he depended upon his Father and upon the Spirit of God. Why did he do that? Because he loved us. He wanted to do, as the second Adam, what the first Adam didn't do. He wanted to be a sympathetic high priest so that when he says, trust me... I left you an example to follow in my footsteps. Keep entrusting yourself to the one who judges righteously, 1 Peter 2. Then I want you to do the same because I did the same. And I want you to see me do it, he says. And it was written down for us. And then we can see what was in his heart 
as he did it, it was God's word, not his own. So precious a gift to us. We learn so much by it. Well, as I said to you before, the next two temptations deal with man's versus God's glory and man's versus God's authority. But that'll be for our time together next time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful, (laughs) precious example on the part of our Lord at the beginning of his ministry. He had yet to face all that he would face, but... But he used what you had already said and he had embedded it in his heart. And this wonderful practice of obeying your word and accepting it for what it really is and believing in it has been the the wonderful means by which your power is on display all throughout the history of your people as they follow your word and not their own. And Lord, we know why you chose this as the means. Because you knew when we were born, we were cursed. And you knew that we would exalt our own words, our own thoughts, our own motives, our own wisdom. You knew that was our bent. And until the old appetites are finally gone, swallowed up in the victory of a glorified body, we face the old appetites, we faced our infirmities, And we are tempted in those things. And you knew that we would need your word and that we would use it in all of its forms as a reminder and a challenge to believe what you've said. May we do that, Lord, as we face temptation. Humble us in these things, we pray, O God. And where we fail... May we never blame you or our circumstances or the wilderness you've taken us into to um, humble us and soften us and test us. But may we see it as your loving parental discipline to bring us to trust you. And we, we ask for your word to go forth this morning in power. And if there's someone here who has been blinded and Satan has blinded their eyes. Their hardness of heart has blinded their eyes. They've never yet truly submitted their heart to you. I I pray your mercy upon them, that you'd soften them in your love, and that your word would powerfully demonstrate its ability to penetrate the corruption that is within humanity. And save them. Grant them faith and repentance. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.